Welcome to another bonus short lecture from the History Teachers Talking Podcast, where Tom or I will lecture on big topics in little time. For more information, you can visit us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com or visit evergreenpodcast.com. The United States went dry on January 16, 1920. The new law, or the 18th Amendment, was called Prohibition. A splendid experiment, some people called it. Prohibition would last 14 years. People argued about it all during that time. Those in favor of Prohibition were called the Dries, and those against it were called the Wets. Prohibition probably did cut down on drinking and drunkenness, but it did not succeed in ending all the use of liquor in the United States. A joke of those times was, Prohibition is a darn sight better than no liquor at all. True, the saloons were gone, but a new kind of bar called a speakeasy soon took its place. Sometimes, these illegal bars were found in dark alleys or on side streets, sometimes out in the country, but they were not very secret at all. In fact, if you wanted to know where a speakeasy was, all you had to do was ask around. Sometimes, speakeasies were raided by the police. Then people were often arrested, or owners might pay off the raiders to let the places stay open. Payoffs and bribes made prohibition hard to enforce. Payoffs and bribes also raised the cost of running speakeasies, and this made speakeasies expensive places to go for a drink. Speakeasy customers were mostly people with lots of money. Women drank too, which was almost unheard of in the saloon days. But in the speakeasy, drinking was taken as a site of women's freedom. Working men and the poor complain about speakeasies, mainly because they could no longer get a cheap drink or a nickel beer, as they did before the prohibition. Some of the liquor was homemade, also known as bathtub gin. Illegal stills, small factories for making liquor, sprang up in basements, backyards, and barns. Some of the bootleg, or rather illegal drinks, put up in these stills were very harmful. They could poison or kill people who drank too much. Smugglers, called rum runners, snuck liquor into the country from Canada and the West Indies. They charged a high price for the risks they took, and some big-time smugglers made millions of dollars doing so. Soon, the liquor business came under the control of gangsters and racketeers. They began to carve out territories where only one gang sold the liquor. Gangsters also owned most of the speakeasies. The gangsters settled their troubles with submachine guns and bombs, and gang wars broke out in major cities. In Chicago, more than 500 gang murders took place in the 1920s. About a half a million people arrested for breaking the prohibition laws during the 1920s, but most of these were common citizens caught in speakeasy raids or small-time still operators. Big-time gangsters and criminal leaders were hardly ever touched, except by other gangsters. Ironically, the Prohibition movement, which gained momentum initially in the late 19th and 20th centuries, and which was driven by various social and religious groups advocating for temperance and moral reform, wound up causing more trouble than good. Prohibition supporters initially argued that alcohol was the leading cause of societal issues such as domestic violence, poverty, and health problems. However, the ban on alcohol led to the rise of illegal activities such as bootlegging, speakeasies, and organized crime. Criminal organizations, such as a notorious Chicago outfit led by Al Capone, profited immensely from the illegal alcohol trade. Prohibition also led to a decrease in tax revenue for the government and an increase in public disregard for the law. Terrible things when a nation was amidst a Great Depression. And so, as the negative consequences of prohibition became more apparent, public sentiment shifted and support for the band weaned. The Wets pointed out all these things and said that prohibition should be ended. 
This is a law that is good for bootleggers, they would say. We can't enforce a law that nobody wants, still said others. The dry said that the law could be enforced, and they believe that it should be enforced more strongly. If the law cracked down, they said, rum runners wouldn't risk getting caught, and the stills would just simply go out of business. Then there would be no liquor for gangsters to get mixed up in. Yet, as simple as that sounded, it really wasn't that simple. Still, the dries were slowly losing ground. People were getting more and more disgusted with the crime that Prohibition encouraged. The Great Depression of the 1930s also exacerbated economic hardships, and the government faced difficulty enforcing prohibition effectively. Because of the Great Depression, almost 13 million workers were out of jobs. People needed those jobs, and liquor industry would provide work for some, at least the Democrats argued. The government would put a tax on liquor, which would further help the US government get out of the Great Depression. These arguments are what helped the Democrats win the election. And in February 1933, Congress passed the 21st Amendment. It took a new amendment to repeal the old one. This new amendment gave authority for control and the sale of liquor back to the states. And by December, three-fourths of the states had ratified the new amendment. Some local areas would remain dry for many years. But on a national basis, prohibition as an experiment was dead. When learning about prohibition, there are quite a few interesting things that pop up. For example, prohibition had been tried before it actually became a law. In the early 19th century, religious revivalists and the American Temperance Society campaigned relentlessly against what they viewed as a nationwide scourge of drunkenness. In 1851, they even scored a major victory when Maine passed a statewide prohibition on selling alcohol. A dozen other states soon instituted Maine laws of their own, only repealed them a few years later after widespread opposition and riots from grog-loving citizens. Kansas later instituted a separate ban in 1881, but that also failed. Another interesting thing you may not know about Prohibition was that World War I actually helped make it a thing. Prohibition was all but sealed by the time the United States entered World War I in 1917, but the conflict served as one of the last nails in the coffin of legalized alcohol. You see, dry advocates argued that the barley used in brewing beer could be made into bread to feed American soldiers, and war ravaged Europeans. Hence, they succeeded in winning wartime bans on strong drinks. Anti-alcohol crusaders were also fueled by xenophobia, and the war allowed them to paint America's largely German brewing industry as a threat. We have German enemies in this country too, one temperance politician argued. And the worst of all, German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are the beer companies four of which, the most popular ones, were owned by Germans. Also, it wasn't illegal to drink alcohol during a prohibition. Technically, the 18th Amendment only forbade the manufacture, sale, and transportation of liquors, not their consumption. By law, any wine, beer, or spirits Americans had stashed away in January 1920 was technically theirs to keep and enjoy in the privacy of their homes. Now, of course, that only amounted to a few bottles, but some affluent drinkers built humongous wine cellars and even brought out whole liquor store inventories to ensure that they had healthy stockpiles for the years to come. Another interesting point. Some states refused to enforce prohibition altogether. Along with creating an army of federal agents, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act stipulated that individual states should enforce prohibition within their borders. Still, the governors resented the strain of enforcing it. Many neglected to appropriate enough money toward policing the alcohol ban. Maryland never even enacted an enforcement code and eventually earned a reputation as one of the most stubbornly anti-prohibition states in the Union. New York would follow suit and repealed its measures in 1923, and other states grew increasingly negative as the decades wore on. Drugstores continued selling alcohol as medicine. The Volstead Act included a few interesting exceptions to the ban on distributing alcohol. Sacramental wine was still permitted for religious purposes, 
purposes, and drugstores were allowed to sell medicine whiskey to treat everything from a toothache to the flu. With a physician's prescription, patients could legally buy a pint of hard liquor every 10 days. This pharmaceutical booze often came with seemingly laughable doctor's orders, such as take three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated. Many speakeasies would eventually operate under the guise of being pharmacies, and legitimate chains flourished. Another interesting fact, while already mentioned before, thousands of people died from drinking tainted liquor. Enterprising bootleggers produced millions of gallons of bathtub gin and moonshine during Prohibition. This illicit alcohol had a famously foul taste, and those desperate enough to drink it also ran the risk of being struck blind or even poisoned. The most deadly concoctions contained industrial alcohol originally made for use in fuels and medicine supplies. And last interesting fact, Prohibition still continues in some parts of the country to this very day. Even after the repeal of Prohibition, some states maintain a ban on alcohol within their own borders. Kansas and Oklahoma, for example, remained dry until 1948 and 1959, respectively, and Mississippi remained alcohol-free until 1966, a full 33 years after the passage of the 21st Amendment. To this day, 10 states still contain counties where alcohol sales are prohibited outright. Hope you guys enjoyed this short lecture. Tom and I will be back next week with a full episode. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com.